Well, good morning. Morning. Oh, you're alive. That's good. I've got two really bad pieces of news for you to start off with. The first is that the clock at the back only says it's half past ten, um, which means I've got two hours. Is that, is that right? Um, Simon helpfully set the clock on his uh, Mac here to be 11.30, so I do really know what the time is. The second is that um, this morning is not as advertised. So those of you who've been following the list and you've been following the uh, series on following Jesus and you've come and you've expecting this morning that it's following Jesus against uh, religion. Well, it's not. <laughs> um, we're going to do the same passages we were supposed to in Luke 18, 19, and 20. Um, but I've entitled this morning, Following Jesus Like a child. For those of you who are really disappointed about that, whatever you paid to get in, come and tell me afterwards and I'll uh, pay you back for it. Okay. It's on my head. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been following Jesus through the early chapters of Luke's Gospel. And uh, so far, we've followed him into a new kind of mission. we followed him to a new way of thinking. we followed him to surprising people. And in the last few weeks, we've followed him to a broken heart. And we've been caught up, haven't we, with a Jesus who is surprising, a Jesus who is challenging, a Jesus who is captivating, and a Jesus who is full of purpose. And hopefully the Sunday school picture of a meek and mild Jesus is now very far from our minds. And as we come to these chapters today in Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19, we're conscious, though, that the pace is picking up a little bit, and the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry is just around the corner. In just a week's time, we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. And then we'll be journeying through Holy Week, witnessing to Jesus' betrayal, his arrest and trial, seeing him suffer through beatings and whippings, and ultimately being nailed to the cross. And then in just a fortnight's time, we'll be celebrating the triumphant victory over death, the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour Jesus from the grave, the supreme victory when sin and sorrow and death were swallowed up in one go. Hallelujah. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Because at this moment, Jesus was in an ongoing battle with the religious leaders of the day. And the heat of that battle was increasing and becoming more intense. If we want to see Jesus' view of the Pharisees at this point, we only need to look at the parable that Jesus tells in chapter 18 and uh, verse 10. Uh, The words here are, Jesus' the tone of voice is mine. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I'm not like these other people. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. What a picture Jesus is painting of arrogance and self-absorption. A picture of people who are so full of themselves and puffed up that they completely lost the plot. I don't expect you know anyone like that. Or maybe you do. A full-blown fight is blowing up, even as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which you can read about in the next chapter, verse, uh, chapter 19 and verses 28. 
going on. The Pharisees are telling Jesus to rebuke his followers for saying that he's the king. We read in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So things are not looking good between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then the elders and chief priests start questioning Jesus' authority. Again, the words in this case are um, uh, those of the elders and the chief priests, but the tone of voice is mine. Luke chapter 20 and verse 2. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And finally, Jesus enters the temple and begins to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. We read in chapter 19 and verse 45. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out of the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. This is now all-out war. And we read in chapter 19, verse 47, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. It's important to get this picture in our minds. Jesus is being clear about his stand against the religious leaders and the religious people of their day. He's ridiculing their arrogance, questioning their authority, and overthrowing their structures in the temple. This is pretty serious stuff. How poignant, then, that right in the middle of these verses, we see this picture of Jesus with the children. Chapter 18 and verse 15. You might want to look at it in your Bible. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not about religion, it's about relationship. Jesus' kingdom is surprising, it's not what you would expect. It's not a kingdom of authority and arrogance, it's not a kingdom of rules and profiteering, it's not a kingdom of grown-ups and self-absorption, it's not a kingdom of religious leaders and religiosity. Rather, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God is random, it's hidden, it's surprising, it's disruptive, it's unexpected. It begins so small that it could go unnoticed. It blows up the status quo. It reverses values. It turns expectations on their head. The kingdom is for the poor, for the oppressed. It's for the outcasts. It's for the uninvited. It's for the naive. It's for the hopeless and the helpless. And now Jesus says the kingdom is for the children and for those who are childlike. Not only can you not enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it as a child, but you can't belong in the kingdom unless you're like children. What did Jesus mean? And this is so countercultural. Our world belongs to sensible, serious grown ups. 
who set budgets and strategies and fight wars. Indeed, we're taught as adults, aren't we, not to act like children. Stop being so childish, we hear cried out at us or cried to adults who are displaying signs of immaturity or act your age, not your... But Jesus says, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. In fact, so welcome are children to Christ in the kingdom of God that adults are most welcome to him who have in them the same disposition the same character, the same spirit as children. This is the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom of God is available to those who will receive the benefits of it with humility and thankfulness. It's available not to those who pretend to merit it as the Pharisees and religious leaders did in verse 11, but to those who humbly receive free grace as the tax collector did in verse 13 of chapter 18. And so we see two emphasis here of Jesus. Become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God and live like a child and belong to the kingdom of God. But what did Jesus mean? How do we follow Jesus like a child? I'd like to point out this morning five characteristics that really jumped out for me as I read chapters 18 and 19 of Luke's gospel and listened to what Jesus was saying and the stories that he was telling. The first one, and this is going to be so easy for you to remember, okay, is compassion. I don't think it's any mistake that actually directly after this vignette of Jesus with the children, he tells the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young man coming to ask him, how should he inherit eternal life? We learn that the young man has kept all the rules whilst growing up. He's done the religious bit. So what more does Jesus require of him? Jesus' answer is simple, profound, and deeply challenging. And we read it in verse 22 of Luke chapter 18. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Right at the heart of Jesus' call to be childlike is a call for compassion to the poor. Somehow it's my experience that sometimes in those years when I was growing up, my heart became calloused and hard. Somehow in the culture in which I grew up, generosity towards the poor got swapped for a healthy cynicism about whether the money really gets there. Somehow in my 20s and 30s, a heart that was sensitive to God got swapped for a heart that was determined to look after myself and my family's finances as a first priority. Somehow in the culture that I grew up in, a heart that was moved by a famine in Ethiopia became deep questions about whether I can actually make a difference and an apathy about continuing to try. 
Somehow the priorities of saving for a rainy day, paying off the mortgage, saving for the kids and retirement got swapped with the priorities of selling everything and giving to the poor. How did that happen? Bishop James Jones of Liverpool highlights for us the injustice in our world and the blindness that we have to it in this story. He says that for one-tenth of the world to which we belong, that is everyone in this room, it's like we're living on the top deck of a cruise ship. Every day is full of entertainment, more food than we can eat, comfy beds, looking forward to the next disembarkment on a holiday. All our needs and comforts are catered for, while at the same time, the people on the nine decks underneath us on the same cruise ship don't have access to running water, are being fed on meals of rice twice a day, and are crammed into squalid conditions with no sanitation or medicine. Somehow our hearts have become hard and callous, and we've become numb to this everyday reality. I'll always remember returning from a recent trip to Ethiopia and Kenya, where I'd witnessed horrific poverty. I'd sat in a village um, with some elders in that village and asked them what their hope was for the future. And they turned to me, and one of the elders said, we're waiting here for a well-wisher or for death. As I returned and got out at Ipswich Station, I was picked up by a taxi driver who asked me where I'd been and what I did. I replied that I worked for a Christian charity that provided clean water and food for communities in Africa and Central Asia, and I'd just been to Ethiopia and Kenya. He replied, I don't know why you bother. It's a waste of money spending money on them. We need to sort ourselves out first and get our country working. Just give up. It's all corrupt anyway, and then people are just so ungrateful. I nearly hit him. (laughs) I nearly hit him. He certainly didn't get a tip that day. Somehow our hearts have become hard and callous, and we've become numb. Somehow in growing up, we've become like the Pharisees, arrogant and self-absorbed. You know, children look at this in a different way. They ask questions of us parents like, why have you allowed this to happen? Why doesn't someone do something about it? How can my pocket money help? Bob Pierce, who founded World Vision and then went on to found Samaritan's Purse, had this phrase which drove all he did and drives us still today. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. This is a childlike attitude of compassion. This is something we need to recapture. It's a kingdom thing. It's a kingdom quality. But I want you to notice an additional aspect to Jesus' compassion as well. And it's found in Luke 19 and verse 41 to 44. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. But he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead. He began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation." And so right at the heart of Jesus, we find a compassion not only for the poor, but a compassion for the lost. Here Jesus stops and weeps for the city of Jerusalem. Just think about that for a moment. A 
the Son of God, in human form, crying with compassion for the people of Jerusalem, crying with compassion for the people of Jerusalem who did not know what made for peace with God, or that this was the time for their salvation, weeping for the lost, compassion for the poor. This is our King. This is Jesus. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Well, we're on our way to finding out what a childlike faith might actually be like. And right at the heart of it, right at the start of it, is compassion. But what else? Well, I'd like to suggest that in these verses also, we see a call from Jesus to humility. It's not only a call to follow him as a child with compassion, but a call to follow him in humility. And as we look at the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter 18 and verse 9 to uh, 14, we see this displayed. I joked earlier about whether you knew anyone who is like this Pharisee or not, and maybe you do. But I think there is something in our culture that has made all of us adults think in the way that the Pharisee does, especially men. Sorry, guys. We all grow up, don't we, wanting to find our way in the world, question who we are going to become. And many of us, and I've been here, get caught in the trap of seeking status and position, of desperately wanting to know that we've made it, that we've found our place in society, that somehow we've become better than the rest. It can be tied up in, the position, in a position in work, a position in Rotary, a presidency of the golf club, or even just membership the security of a nice home, having enough money to to have some pleasure, getting academic letters after our name, a boat, a foreign holiday, shopping in Waitrose and John Lewis, owning our own business, having a garage, a garden, two cars, a conservatory, and an iPad, three. (laughs) Somehow iPad twos are just yesterday. Somehow in the process of growing up, we lose sight of a God who wants a deep, intimate relationship with us and we become independent. Somehow in the process of growing up, we we become the center of the universe. Somehow in growing up, we're grateful that we're not like those other people. Somehow in growing up, we become proud. Proud of our achievements, proud of our status, proud of our hobbies and purchases and our allegiances. Somehow in growing up, we totally lose the plot. And the plot is this that the kingdom of God belongs to the humble. The kingdom of God belongs to those, not like the Pharisee, but like the tax collector here who recognize their lowly position. The kingdom of God belongs to those who have no possessions, seek no status, but instead seek the mercy of God. The mercy of God. The acknowledgement that all we have comes from him. All we are was designed by him. All we become belongs to him. O Lord, have mercy on me. O Lord, have mercy on me. O Lord, have mercy on me. One of the greatest barriers that I've found and I believe many men find in moving on in their faith is the barrier of pride. The barrier of not being seen to be in need. The barrier of not being seen to be coping. The barrier of admitting that we need Jesus in our lives. The barrier of wanting to be seen to be succeeding. To want to be seen to be making it. 
A child has no pretense of position, no pretense of independence, rather a humble walking within the boundaries set for them, a humble seeking of mercy, a humble crying to God without even lifting their eyes to heaven of, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I believe God wants us to walk as children in compassion and humility, but also in intimacy as well. There is an intimacy that I believe Jesus wants in our walk with him, the intimacy of a child with its parent. As a father of two children, both now grown up, Here are some observations about children and what Jesus may have meant when he called us to be his children, the children of God in intimate relationship with him. Last September, there's no stories about you, Joanna, you're okay. Last September, uh, Stuart left home for university, 18 years of age. Very proud of him as a dad. Very proud of him indeed that he's learned to fend for himself, that he's grown up to be independent. In fact, he only now comes back to me for the big decisions, usually money, (laughs) or the lack of it. But he won't any longer ask me what time he can stay up to. He won't ask my opinion on who his friends are, although I will sometimes give that opinion, even if not asked. Gone are the days when he wouldn't stray too far from my side and hold on to my trouser leg. Gone are the days when he would find security in just holding my hand as we walked along. Gone are the days when he would ask me to talk to his teacher about a problem in his class. Gone are the days when he needed to be fed, and long ago the days when Heather breastfed him and held him so close. Gone are the days when he needed help from me with his homework, or pounded me with the endless, persistent, why questions. Gone are the days when a hug and a cuddle were needed to comfort a bruised knee or a bruised ego. You know, I fear that over the years, my relationship with Jesus has gone that that way far too often as well. Gone has been the intimacy of holding his hand every moment of the day. Gone has been the intimacy of not straying from his side for a second. Gone has been the intimacy of asking his counsel on every small decision and rather become a desperate cry when a large crisis looms. Gone has been the dependence of relying on him to be fed daily. Gone has been the dependency of asking the why questions. And at those times I feel like that I realize that I've become an independent child. I've grown into someone who relies on myself to solve my own problems and make my own decisions. And yet, I believe that's not what God wants. I believe that God wants the same intimacy with us as a young child with a mother or a father. A closeness that every moment asks, Lord, what would you have me to do today? What would you have me to do in this moment? I believe that God wants us to live each day as the child Samuel did. Speak, Lord, your servant is ready to hear. Little children depend upon their parents' wisdom and care. They're carried in their arms Go where they send them and take what they provide for them. And this is how Jesus asks us to receive the kingdom of God. 
with a complete surrender of our will to Jesus, an easy dependence upon him, both for strength and righteousness, for tuition, provision, and grace. These days, I'm slowly learning to walk again in closeness and intimacy with God. And I find that I'm living again. Living not just to get things done, or to be busy, or because I have a task list to do. Living not just to survive the battle to the weekend when I can treat myself a little, but living each moment full of joy. It's a massive challenge for me, because I would much rather be in control. I would much rather work through each possible scenario in my own mind and plan the day. I would much prefer to have all the data and take decisions based on that. But I've found that this route leads to exhaustion. It's utterly and totally draining. This route leads to stress and to burnout. This route leads to disorder and chaos. This route leads to panic attacks. This route leads to an unhealthy reliance on human ability. And the only fruit I see coming from this approach is it ties me up in knots. Am I supposed to be reading now or exercising or creating a teachable moment with my son or monitoring my finances or working or dealing with this problem or that problem? The good news is that we can't figure out life like that. And if we're trying to do that, we need to quit now. John Eldridge puts it like this. We can't possibly be in control. We can't possibly master enough principles and disciplines to make sure that our life works out. We weren't meant to, and God won't let you. For he knows that if we succeed without him, we will infinitely be further from him. Instead, Jesus beckons me as a little child and says, Simon, will you walk with me today? Simon, will you trust me to go ahead of you today? Simon, will you really relinquish control of your life today? And as I do so, I find I'm living each moment like a child again, like a child of God again, playful, purposeful, imaginative, dependent, close, love, persistent, living with God as my life where I am fully his and he is fully mine, walking closely with him every day, hand in hand, moment by moment, sharing the challenges and joys of each part of the day, conversing together over decisions and just everyday things, learning to sense God's humor and provision seeing his perfect will lived out in my life. John Eldridge, you can tell I like him at the moment, puts it again like this, really now. If you knew you had the opportunity to develop a conversational intimacy with the wisest, kindest, most generous and seasoned person in the world, wouldn't it make sense to spend time with that person as opposed to slogging your own way through on your own? Jesus said, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Fourthly, children know how to live. I read this week that 1976 was the best year to be alive as a child. Did anyone else read that? They'd done a survey of 4,000 adults, and they'd found that 1976, when I was 11, uh, was the best year ever to be alive. Apparently, the average child spent 810 hours of that um, year outside, enjoying the sunshine. It was the hottest summer ever. Uh, We went around 
catching caterpillars and riding on our rally choppers and uh, just enjoying life and life to its full. You remember those bikes? Sometimes now we look at small children, don't we, and we say, where do they get all their energy from? Or look at how they're enjoying that. Or look at how completely absorbed they are in what they're doing. Sometimes just watching a child's activities for a day can be completely exhausting. Always on the go, always full of life. Some of you grandparents are smirking. Always getting involved, always ready for the next activity. Dad, can we just go and play football? Dad, can we go on a bike ride? Dad, will you just read to me again? Mom, can I go out and play with my friends? Life in all its fullest, exhausting, playful, messy, restless, passionate. Is this what John recalls Jesus as meaning when he says, I've come that you might have life, and life in all its fullness. Yet I find many of my peers quite lifeless, (laughs) apathetic, resigned, depressed, agonizing, worried, harassed, just plain busy or absorbed in soap operas and mindless Saturday night television. Somehow in growing up, we lost our life, our playfulness, our fun, and became all serious or apathetic, and I'm not sure which is worse. Maybe it's being seriously apathetic, which is really dangerous. There are countless of examples of Jesus, though, in these passages, just having fun, in loving life, even in the midst of the journey. I love the story of Zacchaeus uh, in chapter 19. <laughs> he's this tax collector. He's, just, he's climbing trees. <laughs> I mean, you know, when was the last time as an adult you climbed a tree? It's for boys, real boy stuff. And, and here's Zacchaeus, and he's climbing a tree, and Jesus kind of looks up to him and goes, hey, Zac, come down from that tree, mate. I'm coming to your house for tea. Well, there's the amazing incident that we read earlier um, of Jesus predicting his death and the disciples just not having a clue what's going on. (laughs) You know, they looked at him and they went, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, and so Jesus then sends them off to go and get a donkey that you can ride into Jerusalem on. And and just full of laughter and fun and life. Can you imagine riding down that hill on a donkey into Jerusalem with Jesus? What a hoot. What a hoot. Jesus must have been such fun to be around. Childlike life, relationship, community, awesome. I want a life like that. And Jesus has given me one in following him. Life lived with Jesus is an adventure. It's a journey. It's an exploration of who we are and who we're made to be. And finally, in this childlike life that's full of compassion and humility and intimacy and life, there's a determination. And it's in the parable of the persistent uh, widow that Jesus tells in uh, chapter 18 and and right at the beginning. I want to look at that story as we come in and finish. Have you ever had a child wear you out with their constant requests? Dad, why can't we go on holiday? Now! Dad, when will you fix my bike? Dad, what's the capital of Brazil? Dad, can I have the latest Nerf gun? Not now, son. Dad, please, please, can I have the latest Nerf gun? I said, not now, son. Dad, please! Well, we'll see when it gets nearer to your birthday. 
Jesus says this is a model of how we should pray and not give up praying. It's a model of interaction and persistency that Jesus encourages. It sounds about as distant from a daily quiet time as I can imagine. Rather a persistent dialogue, a constant interaction, an invitation to, as it says here in verse 7, cry out to him day and night. There's a childlike faith in persistent prayer. Somehow as I was growing up, my faith in persistent prayer got dented. How about you? Somehow in this culture of instant answers to problems, of instant cooking, when even waiting 60 seconds for the microwave to heat up my cereal in the morning seems like an age, of instantly available information, I'll just Google that, of instant noodles, instant whip, instant availability, 24-7, the value of persistent prayer got diminished. Maybe it's been my adult impatience, I wanted things sorted now, or my adult busyness that doesn't allow for waiting, Just observe people trying to push in when waiting in a queue or swapping lanes in the traffic to get there quicker. Or maybe it's been the disappointments of unanswered prayer in the circumstances of my adult life where things just haven't worked out for far too long and I've lost faith that they ever will. I love this story. Mum, why are you still sick? Our seven-year-old Andrew as he stared at his mum with a frustration that mirrored her own. It was a somber moment. In her heart, his mum pondered how to answer her son. She'd been ill for so long now that she doubted she would ever get better. I don't know, son, she answered solemnly. With a sigh, Andrew dropped his head, got up and walked away. His mum had been ill for months had been through every medical test and was still no nearer to an answer about what was wrong with her. The next day, as his mum lay on the sofa, too ill to move once more, she overheard Andrew's dinnertime prayer, the same prayer he'd been praying every day, three times a day since his mum had become ill. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to have a great day, and please help mum to get better. In Jesus' name, amen. The first time his mum had heard this prayer, she was deeply moved by his simple, direct, heartfelt crying out to God. But now she found, months later, that she was irritated by the repetition. When is Andrew going to realise that God doesn't always answer our prayers? His mum began to wrestle with the question of whether Andrew's faith would be crushed by the unanswered prayer or how her faith was being crushed as well. Haunted by her own lack of faith, his mum began to pray too, asking Jesus to strengthen and stretch her faith, asking Jesus to heal her. Andrew continued to pray his simple prayer three times a day. Over time, Andrew's mum started to recover with a good diagnosis and excellent care from the doctor. She wasn't fully well, but was beginning to feel physically better and spiritually better as well. One afternoon, some two and a half years later, After the onset of the illness, Andrew and his mum were on their way to pick up Andrew's sisters from school. When Andrew asked again, Mum, why are you still sick? His mum replied, I don't know, Andrew, but today I'm able to take you to school. Later I'll cook dinner for you, and today already I've been shopping with you and we've been to the playground. Andrew looked at his mum and said, Yeah, but you still lie on the couch a lot, and you're not able to play ball with me in the garden yet. That's true, his mum replied but maybe if we keep praying, maybe if we keep praying, one day I will be able to. What do you think? 
Andrew knew what it was with simple childlike faith to be persistent in prayer. Some would say his faith was naive. Some would say his prayers were simplistic and his trust in God unfounded. I would say, that sounds like the adult in you talking. Andrew's prayer was absolutely childlike, compassionate, humble, intimate, full of life, determined. Jesus said, unless you become like one of these children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus beckons us to embrace a childlike faith this morning, a faith that's compassionate, a faith that's humble, a faith that's intimate, a faith that's full of life, a faith that's determined. It's a call to return to following Jesus, just like a child. These next five, ten minutes are crucial. What do we do when we sense we've heard God speaking in our hearts? Do you know what? It's so easy for the adult in you to brush that off this morning. How ironic would it be for the adult to brush off what we might learn by following Jesus like a child? So the one question is this. What, which, which one of the five was for you this morning? Which one is the one that as Simon was speaking, the Holy Spirit just lit a little something in your heart? And you thought, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. Where's your hard heart? I'm hearing that. Where are you full of pride and you're driven by the way that other people see you and perceive you? You're driven by the image that you need to project to those around you? Where are you part of that, just controlling? I'll do this myself, Lord. Much easier, much easier to serve God in my way than to learn to listen to him and walk with him. Much easier to do that. I've said to you from the front so many times, I'd preach, I'd lead a church. That's dead easy compared to listening to God and walking with him like a child. But that's the goal. That's what it's about. The life you know, maybe this is for the guys again. How many, how many guys are you just trying to get through to the end of the week? How many parents, how many mums? You're barely hanging in till Friday tea time. You're barely hanging in to the end of the day. If you're going to leave home, it'll be five o'clock on a weekday when all hell's breaking loose and you've had the kids all day and you're hanging in. And I'm going to ask you to respond in a moment. And the response is not, this is what I'm going to do. Because actually you can't do it. You can't fix it. But the response is to say, Lord, I'm here as a child and I'm coming to you, my Father. That's what God asks. Whether you're a business kind of person, whether you're working at home at the minute, whether you're up to your neck in mud and bullets, whether you feel fit and alive, when you feel barely alive, it's coming like a child. And that's it. It's so tempting to try and give you things to do. Because we want that. I'll feel safer that way. And so will you. But what God is saying is that, is that will you just respond to me like a child? Will you, will you let me touch your heart? Will you let me hold you? Will you let me whisper in your ear? Will you let me uh, work in use of the things that you've clung to and are not important anymore? Jesus. Jesus. So here it is. Which one of those five is God speaking to you about right now? Which one? 
listen in. Your mind will go fuzzy. You'll be thinking, I, I can't deal with this. I don't want to do this. I just want to sing a few hymns and get out of here. Just, just hang in there. The God of heaven wants you to know him as a father and you can be his child. That's, that's mega, isn't it? Just, just push in a little bit. Push in. What's God, which of the five is God saying? Which of the five? Listen. Listen, what's the impression in your mind? What, what's the picture God's painting for you? How's God communicating with you just now? And so as you hear that, I'm just going to invite you to stand. And in standing, you're just saying, I, I can't figure all this out. But I'm hearing you speak, Father, and I want to be more fully your child. So as you get to that point, I just invite you to stand as a way of saying, Father, I'm here and I'm your child. Don't need to rush. You don't need to stand because everyone else is standing. You don't need to. This is not a. This is about you and God. This is. Nobody's looking in that sense. And what is it you're asking the Father? Father, would you, would you break my heart for where I've fostered my own interests and my heart has become calloused and hard to people around me? When was the last time you wept and what was it about? Where are you living in pride? You find it so hard to be humble. It's all about your image. It's all about what you project. It's all about making sure others know exactly who you are. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy, Lord. To know you as a child. Jesus. And that intimacy one, Lord. Jesus. Jesus. And for those of us just trying to get through the day, for those of us who've given up being determined because it seems just too hard, Jesus. Jesus.